Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Dan Huger. Eric Cohn is out this week. Thank you for listening. And I want to ask you that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dylan Palman, Acton Research Fellow and Executive Editor for the Journal of Markets and Morality, and Farah Adid. Farah is an incoming PhD student in the Department of Political Science at Boston University. He earned an MA in Political Science from San Diego State University and studies the role of religion in nation building in the nation building process and democratization in Muslim majority countries. He's also a former emerging leader here at Acton, uh, and we're we're thrilled to have him back for this. Uh, first. Today we'll be discussing events rocking the Muslim-majority world, including yesterday's important election in Turkey. First, however, I want to begin our discussion in Pakistan, where last week Imran Khan, former Pakistani prime minister and and politician, was arrested from inside the high court in Islamabad by the National Accountability Bureau on charges of corruption. This is a story that has been rapidly developing ever since, with the Supreme Court of Pakistan deeming the arrest unlawful and mandating Khan's immediate release. The next day, on May 12th, the Islamabad High Court granted Khan two weeks bail, and he was released from custody. Shortly after his release, Khan accused Army Chief Asim uh, Manur of playing a role in his arrest. Events unfolding are not merely politics as usual, but touch on issues of fundamental rule of law, due process, and the role of the military in politics. I want to step back and ask, ask you, Farah, though, who is Imran Khan and what, what role does he play in sort of Pakistani life today? Thank you, Dan, for having me. And thank you for the kind introduction. So uh, this is very an important topic these days because uh, there is uh, a lot going on in Pakistan, particularly with regard to human rights violations. So discussing Imran Khan is very important uh, in, in 2023. Imran Khan is a well-known Pakistani former cricketer politician. So he already had a, had a celebrity uh, image before he joined politics back in 1990s. He is also accused of being launched by Pakistani military as other parties in Pakistan are accused of the same allegation that they were at some point in time in history were launched by the Pakistani military. Later, Imran Khan became very popular after his uh, one uh, uh, protest in, in 2011. The, his party is called Pakistan Pakistan Sab, Justice for Movement. Which is, uh, which is translated as this. So uh, these days, Imran Khan is the most popular leader in Pakistani politics. He was uh, he was thrown out of politics back in 2000, uh, from prime ministership back in 2022, when a vote of no confidence was brought against him. There were more than 10 political parties and the collection of the opposition parties actually ousted him from the politics, uh, from the prime ministership. Uh, right now, there is a debate going on, one, or like about the role of military in politics and 
the elections in Pakistan. Imran Khan at the moment wants elections to be held right away because he is the most popular politician in the country. And uh, as we will we will discuss later on, the military and the opposition are uh, like not willing to hold elections and get Khan back to power. Okay, no, that's that's excellent. And, and to let to let our our American audience know, um, the popularity of cricket is something in Pakistan that I don't think Americans can appreciate. It, it's it's sort of like baseball, basketball, and football all rolled into one. Um, yeah. It's 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 immensely popular, and he had immense notoriety as a cricketer before before his uh, his entrance into politics. Um, now, one of the sort of twists and turns in this in this case involves several different courts in Pakistan, with the, with the Supreme Court intervening and 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 demanding demanding Khan's release. Now, in the United States, the way we we understand this is we have you know various various court bodies, appellate courts, and the and the Supreme Court rules over 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 disputes, you know, is, is sort of the final arbiter when that's necessary. Is that similar to how the court system operates in Pakistan? Yeah, so in Pakistan, we have different uh, tiers of courts, like there are civil courts, then there are session courts, the district courts, then there are provincial state-level courts, and then there are the Supreme Court of Pakistan, right? And uh, they... Uh, but every person has the right to right to appeal against the decision of the lower courts. In the case of Imran Khan, he is facing one more than one hundred cases right now, and they, those cases involve sedition charges, corruption charges. Um, um, there are some other criminal charges. He was he was he's accused of uh, being involved in. Uh, the killing of one of his own party members. So there are more than 100 cases Imran Khan is facing, and they are all over the courts. But now he is seeking bails for from uh, the state level courts and and in the Supreme Court of Pakistan. Okay, no, that's so. You mentioned uh, that Imran Khan is you know the most popular politician in Pakistan right now. Um, but who are so? And then the opposition is you know maybe united against him. But you said there's about ten different parties. But who are who is the opposition? Who are the people that are not satisfied with Imran Khan? Um, where where are these parties getting their support? Um, what are the other you know more popular level forces going on? Is it regional? Is it um, religiously based? Is it you know something some other concerns economic whatever? Um, what would you know? What would bring someone in Pakistan not to love the well beloved cricketer turned prime minister? This is very important. Uh, if, uh, Pakistan has like majority of its population show to young people, and Imran Khan is appealing the imagination of young people. His supporters are between the ages of eighteen and thirty and thirty five. So, uh, and in Pakistan, historically speaking, we did not have a free society. The expression uh, was restricted. It was suppressed. Young people right now in the age, age of social media, they want rule of law. They demand accountability. And above all, they demand expression. And they want free expression. 
So these young men and women from villages, rural areas, and from the urban centers, they are supporting Imran Khan. On the other hand, traditional political parties, which are like Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz and then Pakistan People's Party, they they have their own support base. But with the rise of Imran Khan, they are now confined to specific constituencies. And the most important thing with, with regard to Imran Khan, like uh, as you have pointed out, Revit, uh, his, uh, the, the role of religious, the religious groups and all that, Imran Khan is the single Pakistani politician who is being supported at this moment by liberals, leftists, conservatives, Islamists, secularists. So all kinds of people, in some way or other way, larger groups or small groups, are supporting Imran Khan. And that support is not just because of love for Imran Khan or love for his populist politics, because ultimately Imran Khan is a populist. But that is because mainly of hate or uh, the disregard for the status quo parties because they have been in, in, in power for like the last two or three decades. And, and look at the insulation rate in Pakistan, Lloyd out of the situation, and now particularly the role of military in, in politics. So all these factors contribute to Imran Khan's popularity and rise, uh, rise to power in, in Pakistan. That's that's very helpful knowing that political context. Um, we've we've touched a couple times on the place of military and public life in in Pakistan. What has that role been historically? Because one of the controversial things about this arrest is when it was originally made, it was made by the Pakistani military, not local law enforcement, um, that sort of thing. So what what are the what are the role? What's the role in in this present? controversy, but also also historically in Pakistan, the military has played at, and at times greater or lesser role in politics. Yeah. Um, as far as the role of uh, military is concerned in Pakistan, we generally do not say directly the role of military in Pakistan in popular media. We generally refer to the word establishment to avoid any controversy uh, for, I would say, self-censorship, right? So, um, Establishment has been very powerful in Pakistan. And as Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, so this has been the case in Pakistan. Now, at this moment, uh, uh, as you you said, uh, the role of military in public life, uh, mostly even academic conferences in Pakistan need to be approved, or, some, or at least some speakers have to get like pre-approval by the military establishment before organizing or joining the conference. This, this, I'm just trying to highlight the role of military establishment in Pakistan's public sphere or public imagination. And as well as their role in, in politics is concerned, when Imran Khan was uh, brought to power back in 2018, was not just because he was popular and he uh, became Pakistan's prime minister, he had to got an approval from the military of, uh, and, and this uh, army chief of, of that time. And now at this moment, uh, it doesn't matter, practically speaking, that Imran Khan is very popular. And if elections are held right now, he will become prime minister again. He, he cannot become prime minister if he does not get 
the approval of Pakistan's military establishment. So from these two examples, I'm trying to highlight that the military in Pakistan politics, like so many other developing countries, is still very powerful. It's still the main uh, power player that determines who will lead the country, who will uh, speak what, and, um, and and in what ways. So, yeah. So I'm I'm curious if you could elaborate a little more. What what is the military afraid of with Imran Khan? I mean, I would it's just as an outsider, my expectation would be that pretty much any Pakistani politician would have some pretty similar military interests. I mean, the you know big one being uh, just protecting from the Indians, you know, and then the historic dispute, you know, that's why both countries have gigantic militaries in part is because they not got along. And I'm sure there's other interests in the area, but you know, it, I doubt, in fact, I'm pretty certain Imran Khan wasn't saying, you know, Hey, I love India and it's great. You know, like it seems like the military could count on any, you know, Pakistani politician basically supporting whatever their agenda would be, but obviously that's not the case. So what is it that, that, seems to bother them about him or what, you know, thinking more in terms of uh, because they have such a role in politics, think of them almost as like a political party. What are their interests? You know, what what is it? Why are they so involved in the United States? Uh, you know, we have vast we have this heavily partisan polarized politics. And yet basically every president kind of does the same thing militarily, more or less. Right. And so you don't have and, you know, thankfully for a lot of reasons, you don't have the military trying to intervene in politics. But but I think the military can also kind of count on every American president more or less supporting, you know, a, a general agenda within certain boundaries. What's different about Pakistan? Why why would the military be so involved uh, in politics? Why can't they just say, oh, you know, let people vote for whoever they vote for and we're going to keep doing our thing? I think uh, this this question has two answers. One is very academic that uh, in, in the developing world, civil-military relations have been different from the way they exist in the developed world. Uh, and that is a different debate. But uh, in, in the case of Pakistan and why they don't like Imran Khan any longer, and I think the answer lies in the fact that Imran Khan is, 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 an, is an unconventional politician in Pakistan. Uh, he doesn't offer that kind of submissive, kind of uh, unconditional submission that the military was used to getting from other politicians. Uh, there was a, there was a question of the extension. The previous army chief wanted an extension in service service for like three years. He already got three years extension, and there are reports that he wanted three years more from the prime minister. And then there were some other disputes between the prime minister and the army chief. Imran, who who believes now that he he got into power because of his popularity, so he was not that kind of submissive when he was holding the office. Um, until the, the military and the prime minister were of the view that they were on the same page on different issues, everything was fine. But when the military realized that Imran Khan is becoming kind of assertive, which the military in Pakistan, not just at a personal level, institutionally, does not like it. So that was the uh, that was the like I would say the kind of institutional fragile ego that led to this current chaos in Pakistan. 
So there, there have been in the in the aftermath of Imran Khan's arrests, ongoing protests throughout Pakistan. Um, how do you see this playing out? Uh, how does this bode to, uh, for the future of Pakistan? Are the one and the one sense you have. You have people taking to the streets, which is which is healthy in some senses for civil society. Do people have a right to protest, free expression? But it's also concerning that that's, that such protests would have to take place in, in the first place. Um, how do you, how do you see this this playing out in the coming days? Particularly, you know, as as to um, sort of potential directions for the future of Pakistan in the wake of of this uh, of these ongoing political tensions. So, uh, um, as a matter of fact, all these uh, repressive regimes across the Muslim-majority world, they uh, uh, sooner or later they have to experience all of this. For example, recently we saw uh, uh, like uh, protests in Iran and that we were seeing something in the Middle East, like Egypt and all those countries. So Pakistan is no exception in, in this regard. And the second thing... Uh, I do not think that these protests will lead to fix the institutions, institutional imbalance in Pakistan. I don't think so it is going to happen because at this moment, these protests are reactionary in nature. They do not have a clear vision uh, that what is, what do they want except Imran from back to power. So there is no defined vision or political being or political plan to be implemented in the long term. So uh, I do not see a big change with regard to institutional civil military relations imbalance in Pakistan. However, I can see that it is first time in the history of Pakistan that the military establishment has been exposed so badly that it almost lost all of its credibility. Before that, um, military chose to claim monopoly over, uh, over the nationalist discourse, like they were the defenders of Pakistani ideology, which is like, uh, which uh, they think is Islam. And then they were also the ones who would decide who will, who is uh, loyal to Pakistan and who is not. So these fundamental questions have been challenged now. It's so much so that the Pakistani military's uh, media wing, ISPR, they do not now even uh, post their tweets on Twitter because of the public reaction. Technically, yeah. they are not seen as military generals to face the uh, public reaction or criticism. So they just avoid it. So uh, things are changing, but in the long run, I, I do not see a, a, a huge change in, in institutional setting in Pakistan. Excellent. Let's let's shift now from, from South Asia to the Near East in another sort of developing story in another part of the Muslim-majority world. Um, as way of introduction to yesterday's elections in Turkey, I can think of no better sort of jumping off point than a piece written in the National Review last week by Mustafa Akul, who is a uh, senior fellow at Cato and uh, an Acton affiliate scholar. And he writes... Quote, anything other than a decisive win or loss for strongman Recep Tayyip Erdogan could uh, touch off an ugly fight over the results. On Sunday, more than 60 million voters throughout Turkey will cast their votes in what may be the most fateful election of, for the nation since its founding a century ago. Depending on the result, 
President Erdogan, who has been ruling the country in an increasingly authoritarian and erratic fashion since 2002, will either further consolidate his grip on power or finally lose it. For many in the West, it may seem unrealistic, if not naive, to think that Erdogan could lose. They see that under his rule, Turkey has become an authoritarian regime in which freedom of speech and the rule of law have largely vanished. And many critics of the president have ended up in jail, end quote. As of this morning, it looks like that we're in for that sort of ugly fight that Mustafa was worried about. Uh, President Erdogan leads in the polls, but it looks like he has fallen short of the majority needed to secure a victory. There will, it seems as of this morning again, be a second round of elections between Erdogan and the leader of the largest opposition party, Kamel uh, Ishatoralu. On May 28th, both candidates have pledged to stand in that second round should it be needed. Um, Mustafa in his piece outlined a potential good, bad, and ugly results of the election. Where do you think we stand today uh, with that, Farah? Um, the situation in, in Turkey is interesting, though. But personally, I was not expecting this uh, outcome. But uh, many observers were expecting that this would happen. I was expecting a clear win for the opposition uh, candidate, but this happened, which to me is uh, is an ugly thing that it happened. You know, why? Because uh, even if Erdogan could not like win the election, there's one thing is certain that he still enjoys like a, a vast majority of people's support at this point, which is like itself troubling, which itself is kind of uh, concerning to me. And because um, Turkey, Turkey's history, as far as its politics and society is concerned, it has been troubling because of the debates about assertive secularism, as my professor Ramat Kuru calls it, and uh, now assertive Islamism. When Rudgan came to power in, in his first decade, he was Someone who assured that there will not there will not be as a secularism, uh, in a, a, like opposing, uh, banning headscarves, etc., and that will neither be Islamism, as Islamism. So he projected the kind of um, ideal model for the Muslim world where Islam and democracy can coexist, and. He was supported at, uh, promoted by several scholars you know, in the United States. However, after that one decade, he changed his views almost on everything, and he became a populist, Islamist populist. Right now, his uh, electoral base, as we have seen after this result, is concerning that Turkish society and its large portions still support his kind of populist politics, which effectively means uh, does not have that much respect for freedom, uh, democracy, and uh, rule of law. So to me, these these results are, are kind of ugly, uh, even uh, at least at this point. Dylan, do you have anything? Yeah, I so... I guess I have a lot of thoughts. I don't, I'm not, I'm certainly not an expert in Turkey. Um, I am curious and, you know, maybe Dan or Farah can help out. Um, I'm curious for the same sort of kind of demographic breakdown. So 
you know, in, in Pakistan, we have a very popular leader uh, in Imran Khan, um, but he has a lot of support from young voters, as you mentioned, um, but also a very diverse base, you know, conservative, uh, liberal, um, you know, Islamist or more secular. Um, it does not quite sound the same with uh, Erdogan um, in in Turkey um, in terms of he's made this big appeal towards the more uh, populist Islam. Um, is, you know, what, what does the opposition look like? So, for example, and probably most relevant, um, the election uh, yesterday, it was, you know, slightly, it was like 49% Erdogan, um, 47 or 8, uh, his next closest uh, competitor. And then uh, there was about 5% for this ATA party, which is like an alliance of four different parties. Um, my understanding is that party is kind of right-wing nationalist. I didn't see any, you know, Wikipedia or whatever, any evidence that they were Islamists, but maybe. Um, but it was it was kind of interesting to me. Why did they even put up uh, a challenger in this election? Um, and who are those voters most likely to go through, uh, to, to cast their vote for on May 28? Is this basically... A formality at this point is it is it Erdogan's election to lose um, or yeah so I I'm I'm curious about all that sort of stuff um, as someone who's an outsider you know I know a little bit of the history and a little bit of uh, the general national interests but you know as far as the differing sectors of the the Turkish population I'm not uh, certainly as familiar. So as I as I understand um, the lead opposition party is traditionally. Um, secularist, traditionally, uh, uh, you know, the successor to Kamal Ataturk's party. Um, what's been interesting about this election is they have actually, it looks like, broadened their base of support. Um, now, Erdogan at this point leads. He does not have an absolute majority. But it should also be noted that the opposition, the lead opposition party, made substantial gains across different sectors of Turkish society. Oftentimes, when you see these electoral maps in Turkey in the past, you see this party performing well in the western part of the country, particularly the coastal regions um, near Greece. Here you had also in this latest election substantial support in the eastern part of the country and also around Ankara. And this is this is sort of new. So while the minor parties I'm not I'm not as keyed up upon what the main opposition party has done is successfully broaden its appeal, even though they, they came up short in this round. Farah, do you have uh, any perspective on this? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I agree with Dane. Uh, because in Turkey right now, uh, the bigger political debate is that their democracy is under attack. And those who are in opposition right now they want to protect the, the 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 kind of democracy they believe should be in Turkey. So this is the basic idea which which actually brought opposition parties together. And and there also exist differences in uh, differences among among the opposition political parties. And and Dean's uh, Dylan's uh, questions about uh, like this reference about Pakistan. But in Pakistan, the situation is is a little bit different because of the role of military. Uh, 
it is military that has to decide who should be in opposition. And and there are certain political parties, uh, uh, even Islamist groups, that are created, funded, sustained by the military and choose against the civilian government when and as needed. For example, uh, uh, recently, Tahrike Nabak Ya Rasulullah, that is a right wing Islamist group in Pakistan that claims to protect the honor of Prophet. The, the group is allegedly controlled by the Pakistani military and used against those who the military need to fix them, right? So there, there are less, apart from some mainstream political parties, there are less independent political forces in Pakistan. They are more controlled by the powerful military establishment and they, their position is determined by the position of the military. But in the case of Turkey, that is very interesting, and this is the difference, and this is a very important difference, that the opposition has clear ideological lines at this point, that they want to oppose the forces of uh, authoritarianism, because right now, Turkey has become what we call a competitive authoritarian regime, where institutions are no longer independent, and they are serving the interests of one uh, democratically elected uh, dictator or the So, so this is the difference. But I, I, I mostly agree with Dane as he has pointed out the, um, the electoral dynamics and, and politics in Turkey. I'm curious also in in both contexts, uh, as we've mentioned and touched on, you know, the role of religion, Islam in particular, um, very in some ways, very different ways in both countries. But what about religious leaders? Um, are, you know, are they, you know, we we have, for better and worse, uh, in the United States, a tradition of, you know, preachers endorsing candidates or, you know, even having prayer meetings and that sort of thing. You know, is this the sort of thing that other big public, uh, you know, appeals and statements coming from, um, you know, imams and, and others uh, within the country? Or is it more something that uh, is just, yeah, is it is it something that, yeah, everybody maybe has religious motivations, but the actual religious leaders are, you know, taking a step back. You know, obviously, neither country is uh, Iran, right? You know, there's there's a whole spectrum uh, of, of how that could go. Um, but I'm curious what, what variety or what, what sort of interests are at play there. So, uh, in the case of Turkey, as we have seen that um, their Ministry of Religious Affairs, they, uh, it is supporting um, and projecting Urzagar's politics and his way in, in Turkish politics right now. But in the case of Pakistan, the, the story is very interesting. In Pakistan, um, Imran Shah had to face, despite his populism, he had to face uh, issues at different fronts. For example, uh, the challenge from Islamists, how to go to Islamists because military would have easily used the Islamist against him. So part of his populism lies in his ability to maneuver Islamism and Islamists. There are religious uh, imams and, and leaders who are openly supporting Imran Khan. And they believe Imran Khan is the one who will create, as he has promised, uh, the state of Medina what he popularly calls the Riyas of Medina, the one um, Prophet Muhammad 
Khan created in Medina when he was there. So uh, Imran has uh, Imran has this Imran has done this great job in Pakistan that he was able to resist military in a way that even military could not use Islamist card against him. He has support of religious uh, segments in Pakistan. However, all this being done, when recently he escaped uh, assassination attempt, he but he got injured. That was the person who wanted to kill him. That when authorities released a video, the person claimed that he wanted to kill him, Ramshan, because of his uh, disrespect for 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 profit and. That was kind of a blasphemy case against Imran Khan. And Imran Khan has been very careful because several commentators and analysts have been pointing out to him that your one careless uh, statement can trigger the Islamist reaction that can be used against you, you uh, as the pretext of blasphemy. So Khan is very, very, very uh, interesting figure in Pakistan that in his uh, protest. The funny thing is, there are those who are the supporters of free society. At the same time, there are those who want an Islamic state. So Khan has kind of combined this, uh, these different uh, and diverse groups in his uh, politics. One of the things that you can look at with the Turkish election is is the fact that this looks like it's going to a second round. I think says something that you know perhaps you had you had some folks who had hopes for a clear opposition victory. You had some folks that were basically dismissing the election as a sham and thought that Erdogan would manipulate the results. But the fact that we have this this sort of mixed result of, of, of Erdogan performing very well but not enough to secure a majority suggests to me that maybe Turkish institutions are a little more robust than, than many thought. Um, is that if, – if the results themselves aren't necessarily encouraging – is the fact that the process has played out as it has encouraging for Turkey? And, and again, we have a second round that may go either way. Um, is, this, is this something that's encouraging to you, Farah? It is. Uh, it is because uh, someone who was really disappointed after like, seeing Erdogan's uh, populist politics and his policies uh, – this is encouraging. At the same time, I think it will be uh, premature to decide the uh, dynamics of institutions and their role because uh, it depends. We do not have reports from independent uh, uh, watchdogs about uh, electoral dynamics at this moment, what the state institutions have been doing and what kind of electoral uh, rigging, if any, happened in Turkey and who was doing what? One thing, and because there there was the pre-polling rigging as well, because the opposition leaders were in prison and all that media was controlled. So we we cannot just say maybe that uh, the institutions are robust in a way that they are independent, because Erdogan has control over them. And the next important test for the institutions in Turkey will be the runoff election that is going to be on May twenty eighth, uh, because. What if this if this margin 
if like it's, it's a very low margin between the two uh, candidates, what if the institutional maneuvering uh, unfolds in a way that it favors Ortegan and he becomes president again? That will not be encouraging for me and uh, in, and not for the uh, many like-minded uh, Muslims and many Turks uh, well, in, in, uh, after the election. So I, I want to close with sort of a broader question. And we've, we've talked about how dynamics in Turkey and in Pakistan are different in regard to the role that Islam plays in public life and the, and the role that Islamist parties play. Um, are, is there a way forward, do you think, for a, for a constructive, democratic... Islamic perspective that can be brought to politics that supports democracy, that supports rule of law, that supports human rights. Um, and are there any examples in the world that you look to that that inspire you where you see that's happening? I would I would mention two points. One, I just did an asset for religion and liberty online, and that that will get published, I think, uh, May twenty fifth. So. Yeah. I addressed this question in my essay. Wonderful. And second, second, uh, the uh, like Urdegan's party, Justice and Development Party, was a role model for the Muslim world one decade ago. It was a role model. We all were projecting that Urdegan's politics, that he combines Islamic principles and democratic principles in a way that give us uh, a vision for the Muslim uh, democracy. However, as I pointed out, Lord Acton's uh, idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, this happened with Urdegan, that when he when he assumed all power himself and he made himself the center of power, that is what happened. Um, other than that, there can be like a robust Muslim democracy, but the condition is that there has to be a robust mass movement with the VN because if people do not own a political system or its value, there is no public ownership of the system, then anytime any powerful individual or powerful institution will intervene and assume a monopoly over the power. Uh, as the Western experience shows that Ultimately, it is, it is the people who protect to defend their institutions and their values. Institutions do not exist in vacuum. They are defended and they are uh, protected by the people. So uh, I'm, very, I'm very much positive about the future of Muslim world as we have seen um, back in 1990s, some strong... Uh, uh, public uh, like mass movements in Indonesia that we have seen recent uh, protests in Iran and now in Pakistan. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this this momentum will continue and then we will have an informed uh, mass movement with a vision to demand a free and uh, a democratic society. So I have a similar question, um, but maybe a step or two removed. I, I... I tend to think, at least historically, um, successful democracies 
often um, correlate with at least some degree of religious liberty. I think maybe people's standards today for the the Muslim majority world are, are kind of warped by uh, you know where things have come in the United States and other places in the West in terms of religious liberty, and they forget about our history. So some people have been pointing out, I think, with a unfortunate agenda lately. But um, you know, you're about to go to to Boston University, and I was talking to you before we started about you know the Puritans uh, over there in Massachusetts. Um, if you look at early charters and early constitutions of Massachusetts, they're very positive about uh, the Reformed Christians. Um, they are much less tolerant of, say, Baptists and very intolerant of Roman Catholics. Um, but they had somewhere they started. And if you go to uh, Pennsylvania, founded by William Penn, uh, the Quaker, um, far more religious liberty there. The Quakers were nonconformists in England. Um, so what I'm looking for, I'm curious about, is there any analogy in the Muslim-majority world to that where there's uh, a society maybe not with uh, you know this robust religious liberty that we you know sometimes take for granted here in the United States when we think of the First Amendment and disestablishment and people of all religions you know coexisting even on my block uh, where where I live in our, our suburbs we have we have Muslim neighbors we have Hindu neighbors we have Catholics we have Protestants you know kind of everybody living together peacefully uh, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of history to get there so my thought would be, where in the Muslim world are there just different kinds of Muslims living peacefully? Where is there that level of religious liberty? Um, and might that maybe be the, 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 the spark of that more popular grassroots, um, uh, you know, soil uh, or, you know, fruit or seed that could lead to, you know, a greater liberty and democracy in the future? Which is very, very interesting, and and, and it is a very nuanced uh, in a way. Uh, as I pointed out, that Odegaard's uh, first decade was a model for the Muslim world, and that kind of uh, is Muslim politics is desirable. However, uh, other than that, in in the Muslim world, uh, and uh, Ahmad Guru is also my is my is my supervisor, and I, I like him as a scholar, and he spoke Islam, authoritarianism, and development. The the story in the Muslim world began in and in twelfth and thirteenth century when uh, Ulama state lines started to get up. and after that it became so powerful that the ulama in the Muslim majority countries still play a crucial role in deciding. Uh, the public policies and and the Muslim general uh, discourse on on culture and society and politics. So there are no examples that can be like presented as a model. And honestly, after Indonesian experience and then it's like um, uh, downfall from 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 where it started and now the, the uh, Turkish experience. I'm very careful to suggest that this kind of Muslim politics can be a model for the Muslim world. I feel all these different cultures, because we can say there is a Muslim world, but at the same time, we cannot dismiss the fact that these different societies have their own history and cultural evolution that plays an important role. Uh, like in the Western world, all these Western societies have their independent, unique historical and cultural experiences that played an important role in their political 
evolution. The same is the case in the Muslim world. So uh, I feel the Muslim world, uh, the Muslim world first have to um, evolve in a way at, that admit religious freedom is important because there was a kind of, if, if you ask me for a model, then I would say it was a Muslim world between 18th and 11th century when that is called the, the golden age of Islam, that there existed a kind of a toleration at that time. Different religious communities, Christian, Jews, Muslims, played role for their collective well-being. Um, but that, that, that does not exist in the contemporary Muslim world because of Islamism and populist Islamist politics. So um, I would say the Muslim leaders and the Muslim um, and, and the Muslims in general need to build up their modern politics where they left back in 12th and 13th century because, because this, this, is, this is very complicated in Muslim world that everything is coming from the West. However, there are instances from the Muslim world itself that there existed a, a, a state religion separation to an extent. There, there were different religious communities that operated under the same political authority. They were protected. So uh, there are examples, historical examples, that the Muslim world can work on and, and evolve uh, in a way. This is this is a, a wonderful retrieval project that uh, you know Acton is is very keen to be involved with, and is something that we've done for for many many years with both Catholic and Protestant sources, and there are those roots of a free and virtuous society to be found in many different cultural contexts, and the importance of retrieving those going back to the sources is uh, something that can't be overstated. Let's call it a wrap here. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look into the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find the program. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Farah. For the Acton Institute, I'm Dan Huger. We'll see you next week.